Well, my daughter told me a story the other day in the car on the way to, uh, on the way to school. She said there was a Sunday school teacher, and just as Sunday school was letting out with her kids, she said to all the, her students in Sunday school, now, when we go into the church, make sure you're quiet. And does anyone know why we're supposed to be quiet? And one little girl raised her hand, and she said, because there are people asleep. <laughs> Not throwing shade at anybody. I just want you to have that invitation this morning to not fall asleep. By that I mean not start hearing the words of Scripture and thinking of someone else instead of yourself. Or just to hear the words of Jesus as sort of a good teacher, giving you good advice, right? It's really easy, especially if you've grown up in the church and you've heard the stories all your life. It's really easy to just start thinking of Jesus as sort of a teacher, just a teacher, not a savior. Jesus is no mere teacher. He is our brother, our captain, and our king. So I want to invite you into uh, the story of Jesus as found in Mark chapter 4, verses 1 through 20. If you have your Bible, you can turn open there. We're going to be going through this passage this morning. Mark chapter 4, 1 through 20. Again, Jesus began to teach by the sea. And such a very large crowd gathered to him that he got into a boat on the sea and sat down. And the whole crowd was by the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And he was saying to them in his teaching, listen to this. Behold, the sower went out to sow. As he was sowing, some seeds fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate it up. Other seed fell on the rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of soil, and when the sun had risen, it was scorched, and because it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked it, and it yielded no crop. Other seeds fell into the good soil, and as they grew up and increased, they yielded a crop that produced thirty, sixty, and a hundred times as much. And Jesus was saying, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. As soon as Jesus was alone, his followers, along with the 12 disciples, began asking him about the parables. And he was saying to them, to you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God. But for those that are outside, everything is in parables. So that while seeing, they may see and not perceive. And while hearing, they may hear and not understand. Otherwise, they might return, and it would be forgiven them. And Jesus said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. These are the ones who are beside the road where the seed is sown, where the word is sown. And when they hear, 
immediately Satan comes and takes away the word which has been sown in them. And in a similar way, there are the ones sown with seed on the rocky places, who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy, and yet they have no firm root in themselves, but are only temporary. Then, when affliction or persecution occurs because of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown with seed among the thorns. These are the ones who have heard the word, but the worries of the world, the deceitfulness of wealth, the desires for other things choke, enter in and choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. And those are the ones sown with seed on the good soil. And they hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30, 60, and 100 times as much. This is the word of the Lord. Father, as we come to your word today, we pray for the grace that we would not be the people who hear and do not understand, who see but not receive. Lord, give us faith to receive your words as true so that we might return to you and be forgiven. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So all of us have places in our lives where we wish we could do better. Amen? (laughs) When you hold a Coke can in your hand, and you take your other hand, empty Coke can, by the way, and you squeeze it, what happens to the Coke can? if you're modestly strong. It gets smaller and smaller. It's like my favorite thing to do as a middle school boy was crush a Coke can and show everyone how strong I was. When you pull your hand away, it stays squashed, right? Imagine if you did that with a rubber ball. Have a rubber ball. You squeeze, 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 squeeze. It gets smaller and smaller. But when you take your hand away, boop, it's right back. I'm convinced that for much of our lives, that's what we're actually trying to do. We squeeze and squeeze and squeeze that rubber ball. We try harder. We have great intentions. Our willpower is formidable. But then when the pressure lets up, the ball just pops right back out. We can't sit back and make ourselves become a more godly person by simply trying harder. We think our best thinking can get us out of this, but it will not. You know the children's book, The Little Engine That Could? Right? What does he say? I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. The Christian life does involve the renewal of our minds. It does involve us thinking. One of the ways that we love the Lord is with our mind. But the root of your problems is not in your mind. You cannot fix it in your mind. The root of your problems is in your heart. So in this parable, Jesus is showing us where true power lies. The true power is not the nature of our soil, the nature of who we are. True power cannot be there because we have all kinds of problems with our soil. It's not the soil that saves us. It's the seed that saves us. True power to change lies in the seed that goes down into our hearts. True power to change is found in the Word that dwells in us. That sounds great, right? Community Bible Church, the Word that dwells in us. Ken Fuller, who was preaching last week, was talking about how the Scriptures are sufficient for us. And as he was going through the Emmaus Road, and Jesus is standing right beside these disciples, 
Jesus could say, here I am, right? He doesn't. Even while he's with these disciples, he's still pointing back to this book. He's still pointing back to scriptures. He was walking with these men. His teaching reached down into their hearts and set their hearts on fire. Jesus preached the greatest sermon of all time from the scriptures to them. Unfortunately, you do not have Jesus preaching to you this morning. I cannot do that for you. You have me. The problem is there are all kinds of ways that we resist God's word coming into us and changing us. I found my heart so stirred last week, and I was so excited that I got to preach on this passage. I'd already chosen it. It worked out perfectly. Because if God's word is sufficient, then why is it that we tend to not go to it for answers? Why do we tend to not want to listen to God? I know what's best. God doesn't know me. So that's what Jesus' parable is all about. So let's set the scene. Look back at, with me at chapter one, or verse 1. Chapter 4, verse 1. Jesus is on the boat on the seaside. He's speaking to people who are out on the shore. So kids, close your eyes for a second. Imagine Jesus sitting in a boat, looking out at hundreds of people on the shore. It was so big, he couldn't even fit on the, on the land. Earlier in Mark, Jesus had called his disciples to leave their boats and follow him. And he said, I will make you fishers of men. Now we see Jesus getting into a boat and becoming the fisher of men that he was calling his disciples to be, right? That's what he's doing. Jesus is casting out his net, not to catch people and eat them, but to save them, to give them life. He's doing it for us too right now. It's like we are gathered around Jesus as he sits and teaches. How does he teach? He teaches with parables. The Greek word is parabole, parabole, which means to throw down side by side. It's kind of like the word juxtaposition, which was one of my favorite vocabulary words in 10th grade, juxtaposition. It's putting heavenly values next to earthly images. That's what a parable does. Just by a show of hands, who in here is already familiar with the parable of the sower this morning? Who has heard it before, maybe learned songs about it? There's a Donut Man song I grew up with that I'd love to sing for you right now. Fortunately, we don't have quite enough time. Maybe my kids will sing it for you later. It's such a memorable parable, and Jesus is drawing upon an image from the Old Testament, from the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 55, which is such an incredible chapter, by the way. Just two verses in Isaiah 55, so check this out. Isaiah 55, 10 and 11. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth, and making it produce and sprout, and providing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word be which goes out of my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the purpose for which I sent it. So Jesus is starting his ministry. This is the very first time we really see Jesus sitting down and we get the content of his teaching Earlier in Mark, we hear that he's in the synagogue, he's around the town, he's going place to place, and he's teaching. Mark doesn't tell us really what he's teaching. This is the first time we hear not just a conversation of Jesus and some people, but this is actually a sermon. And he's showing us the typical ways that people are going to resist him as he goes around in the whole gospel story. The word is going out, Jesus says, and it's encountering different responses. As I've read the passage over the last few years, I grew up with this, of course, but I've begun to see how the first three soils 
are a reflection, a direct reflection of the, uh, the world, the flesh, and the devil. For centuries, the church has used that phrase, the world, the flesh, and the devil, to describe the three enemies of mankind. If that language is new to you, it can be a little bit off-putting. Our modern culture has very much thrown away this language. We tend to think of the devil as a pre-modern superstition or maybe a scary Halloween costume this week. We tend to think of the flesh actually as the good guy in our culture, right? Our culture says, you do you. Love is love. Do whatever feels right. Or my favorite, Tom Haffelford from Parks and Rec, treat yourself. Treat yourself. So culturally, we've written off the world, the flesh, and the devil as our enemies. But ironically, we are not left without enemies. We're still filled with a world, filled with people who feel like they are in a battle. But instead of thinking of the world, the flesh, and the devil, they are treating other people as their enemies. And so we have, we're left with entire groups just demonizing others, treating them like the enemy, saying things like, if we just could take out those people, then all our problems would be fixed. It doesn't work like that, which is why Paul's words in Ephesians are so powerful. This is what Paul says in Ephesians 6, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. So, let's go through each of these enemies in the first three soils. Here are the four soils. Number one is the path. Birds take the seed. The the seeds fall on the path, the open path. Birds see it as a tasty treat, and they swoop down and they gobble it up. I've seen this happen with my chickens every day. They love it. Seeds are their favorite treat. So Jesus is saying that's just like what happens when Satan sees the word going before people. He swoops in to take it. Verse 15 says that when they hear, immediately Satan comes and takes away the word which has been sown in them. So in your notes, right under number one, which is path, birds take the seed, you can write Satan. Satan takes the word. Who is Satan? What do we know about this dude? First, he doesn't really have a name. The Satan is actually a title. It means the accuser. The devil is also called the tempter, the deceiver, the evil one, the serpent. He was created by God. This is key. He's not sort of like the evil version of God who's infinite and will always be around and equal and opposite to God. He's a created being with a beginning and an end. Satan is a fallen angel, and through history, he's led a rebellion against God, drawing in as many created beings, including human beings, into his quest. What is his quest? His quest is to seize the rule of creation away from God and and redefine good and evil. John Mark Comer, one of my favorite authors, has a brilliant way to describe Jesus' victory over Satan. He says that the death and resurrection of Jesus was like D-Day in World War II. It was the decisive battle that marked the beginning of the war's end. The devil's fate was sealed on the first Easter, just as Hitler's fate was sealed at the D-Day invasion on June 6, 1944. But there are still many miles to cover to reach the end of the war, 
And in the interim, the devil is like a wounded animal, a dying dragon, more dangerous than ever. If Jesus' anthem is on earth as it is in heaven, Satan's anthem is on earth as it is in hell. Hear that. If Jesus' anthem is on earth as it is in heaven, Satan's anthem, his motto is on earth as it is in hell. Miserable. Your misery is his goal. And just because you're saved, just because you claim the name of Christ, does not make you immune to the temptations and struggles and work of our enemy. How does he operate? Satan deals in lies. John 8, chapter 8, is a great passage where Jesus is in conversation with the Pharisees, with the temple rulers, and he actually says, hey, you're not sons of God, you're sons of Satan. Here's what he says in uh, verse 44 and 45. Jesus says, you are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. Hear the description of Satan here. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he tells a lie, he speaks from his own nature because he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I, Jesus says, because I say the truth, you do not believe me. Doesn't this sound just like the birds swooping down to take the seeds away? Jesus tells the truth, but Satan's lies stand opposed to Jesus, who is himself the truth. Satan steals away the word, the truth, by replacing it with a lie. It's what he did in the garden with Eve, and it's what he tries to do to us. Here's what Martin Luther says about the lie. The sin underneath all our sins is to trust the lie of the serpent that we cannot trust the love and grace of Christ and must instead take matters into our own hands. So think about your life for a moment. You may say with your lips that Jesus is Lord, but in little ways do you deny Jesus by taking matters into your own hands, thinking that you know better than him. You may not say the words out loud, but there may be a subconscious narrative, a subconscious feeling, urge to take matters into your own hands. I say that because I have it. I do that. But think about with me how backwards that is. We trust Jesus with our eternal souls, the most important thing to us. But then we don't trust him with smaller things like our personal habits, our sexual ethic. It's as if we would tell a babysitter, I'm going away for the weekend and I'm trusting you to take care of my kids. There's $100 of jewelry, though, I'm going to lock up because I don't trust you with that. It doesn't make any sense. We are the disciples sitting at Jesus' feet, but we want him to sit at our feet. We want him, in fact, to be our disciple, not the other way around. And so the lie of the serpent is that we cannot trust the love and grace of Christ. We cannot trust that God actually knows what's best for us. And instead, he tells us, take matters into your own hands. Maybe don't bow down to me in worship, but bow down to yourself. Serve yourself. And this is made even harder because of the second soil. Here's the second soil. It's the seed that fell on the rocks and were scorched by the sun. Number two is rocks scorched by the sun. And in a similar way, these are the ones sown with seed on the rocky places, who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And yet they have no firm root in themselves, 
but are only temporary. Then, when affliction or persecution occurs because of the word, immediately they fall away. So the world, the flesh, and the devil, we've already done the devil. Which enemy is at play here in this second soil? Do you notice? It's the world. Afflicted by the world. Afflicted or persecuted by the world because of the word. Friends, we don't by nature drift toward godliness. We by nature drift away from God. And the world has been doing that for a very long time. The world is haunted by echoes of God's design and goodness. But it's almost like a mirror that's dropped and shattered. And you see little pieces here and there. But it's been marred by our sin. The world treated Jesus badly, and it will treat us badly. We shouldn't expect otherwise. Jesus says here in verse 17 that affliction and persecution occur. Why? Because of the word, and the people fall away. Paul David Tripp says that our culture has canonized comfort and sees suffering as horrible interference. We've made comfort like the ultimate goal of our lives. And any sort of suffering is just interfering with my comfort. We should not be surprised and lose heart when suffering happens. But for many, this is exactly what happens. Difficult seasons arise, and we're tempted to throw in the towel. Jesus loved the world. It's one of his most famous verses in the Bible. For God so loved the world, John 3.16, that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him would not perish but would have everlasting or eternal life. Jesus loved the world, and yet the world comes against Jesus and those following him. This system of living that is in rebellion against God, it's not the people. Jesus loves the people. But the enemy of the world is this system which systematizes comfort, canonizes comfort, and sees suffering as interference. The heat comes and can easily discourage and demean us. As the dread pirate Roberts in The Princess Bride says, life is pain, highness. Anyone who says differently is selling something. That's the world. So the third soil. The third soil is the thorns, choked out by weeds. The seed pops down into dangerous ground. It goes down a bit into the soil, but weeds and thorns grow up around the plant and choke out the water, block out the sunlight, and kill it. The image of weeds and thorns growing up around the plant makes it seem like the enemy is out there. With Satan in the world, the enemy was out there, but this third enemy is actually in here. It's the flesh. The enemy, in a sense, is our self. Jesus is saying the weeds choking out our plant is just like the flesh choking us out by our desires. So you can write that down right underneath thorns, the flesh choked out by desires. The Greek word Paul uses for the flesh is sarks, which refers to the primal sort of animal brain, animal desire to gratify our base desires, especially desires for pleasure. You can put a cake on a table and sit your toddler down and say, now wait, we're not going to eat it. And we all know how that goes. No toddler will be able to resist that urge on their own. That's the flesh. That's our natural inclination to just grab it. The flesh is seen in the beginning with Eve's sin. Yes, we do have Satan tempting Eve, but there's also a part of Eve that's at work. Genesis 2, 6, so when the woman saw 
that the tree was good for food. It was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. That's exactly what's happening in Mark. Notice the pattern. She saw it, she took it, and she ate it. Seeing, taking, and enjoying is often the mark of the sinful flesh at work, always with something that is not given. Eve had not been given the fruit as a gift to enjoy. Likewise, when we sin, when we sin in lustful ways, we are doing exactly what Eve did. We see something beautiful God made but did not give us. We are taking it out of that desire, and finally, we're enjoying it, searing our souls in the process. The enjoyment of pleasure is hardwired into our bodies and minds. God made us to enjoy His creation. It's not that pleasure itself is bad, but what Satan does is he tempts us to find pleasure for the wrong things, or at the wrong time, or in the wrong way. Pleasure-seeking is a tool used by Satan to propel us into the trap of sin, especially habitual, addictive sin. Our flesh acts as a desire compass, switching our hearts into autopilot. The Apostle Peter describes how all people experience this struggle with the flesh, both before Jesus and once they're saved as well. 1 Peter 2.11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war against the soul. Another translation says to abstain from the passions of the flesh. Paul, the Apostle Paul, also wrote about the struggle of the flesh against the spirit, both in Galatians and in Romans. Romans 8, 6 through 8, for the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. It does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so, and those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Thanks a lot, Paul. This is what Scripture says, but our current American culture doesn't even have a category for the flesh as an enemy. The grand scheme of Satan is for us to take our eyes off of these three enemies, and by writing them off, we lose sight of the real battle that we are in every day. So I don't know about you, but as I read through all of those descriptions of the three soils, I see all of them in myself. The world, the flesh, the devil, they are all out to get me. And with the flesh, it's me out to get me. I am my own enemy. So let's finally get to the fourth soil, shall we? Number four, the good soil receives the word and bears fruit. Everyone take a big sigh of relief. Verse 20 says this, the final verse of our passage. And those are the ones sown with seed on the good soil. They hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30, 60, and 100 times as much. The good soil is the good life. We see flourishing life here. Jesus is picking up an image from Psalm 1, which says this of a righteous person, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree planted by streams of living water, which yield its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And in whatever he does, he prospers. It is a flourishing tree planted beside water 
with fruit on its vibrant green branches. A few weeks ago, Mike talked about silence and solitude, right? How about how we need to take time to dwell with God in God's Word. And that's how we cultivate the good soil. It's right there in Psalm 1. Uh, Verse 2 says this, but his delight, everyone say delight, is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he what? Meditates day and night. And for this, Jesus is our model. That's what Pastor Mike was saying a few weeks ago in Luke. He would consistently retreat by himself to pray. Jesus' life on earth was lived in constant obedience to the Father, rejecting the temptations of the other three soils. Which soil is Jesus? He's the good soil. None of us, when reading this parable, would say, if I had the choice, I think I'd like to be one of the first three soils. Like, I'd love to be eaten alive by terrifying beasts flying out of the sky and grabbing me. I'd love to be choked out. Like, no, no one says, this is things no one says. The problem with that, though, is that while we wouldn't wish this fate on ourselves, We cannot escape the three bad soils by sheer willpower, by just trying harder. The world, the flesh, the devil are all coming against us. Where is the hope? Jesus is the good soil. That's awesome. Jesus can be the good soil. That doesn't change who I am, though, does it? We can find this answer, where's the hope, by asking this question. Why did Jesus use the image of a seed Have you ever thought about that? Why did Jesus use the image of a seed? So I could hold an acorn right here, right? It's tiny. If you want to take over the world, you could come in with a sword. You could come in with fire. Jesus could easily describe his word as it's done in other places in Scripture as a sword or as fire. But he doesn't do that. It's because he's not out to destroy our soil. What would happen if you came into a meadow and started slashing away at everything with a sword? Or what would happen if you started lighting fires all around the meadow? It would all be destroyed. The soil would be damaged. Jesus is creating a garden, so he's planting seeds. What's so important about a seed? There's three things. The first is this. The seed has the power to bring life. Contained within a tiny acorn is all the information in biology that a fully grown oak tree needs. Walk outside, pick up an acorn, and look up at an oak tree. Compare the two. It all came from this tiny thing. It reaches its leaves high into the sky, coming from branches, which come from a trunk, which comes from a stem, which come from roots, which come from this tiny seed. The growth of the seed into a tree is like a person growing in wisdom and understanding and maturity. And that's one central goal of the church through history, around the world, to cultivate good soil so that people would be able to receive the word, receive the seed, and grow into a mature person. The seed has the power to bring life. The second thing about a seed is the way that a seed releases its power by going deep. Think about the first three soils. Why didn't the seed grow in the first three kinds of soil? Because the seed was stopped from going deep. Other desires, trials, hardships, the work of the enemy all stopped the seed from actually going deep into the soil and taking root. But when the seed of God's word goes into the good soil, it goes deep, it grows roots, and then it bears fruit. 
What does it look like when the sea goes deep into your life? It looks like the core of who you are is being slowly transformed, not into a better you, but into the image of Jesus. And sometimes people hear talk of Jesus and the church and they get turned off because they've seen people who claim to be Jesus' followers who are mean, who are hateful, who are judgmental, who seem to do more harm than good. I mean, abuses. And you might think to yourself, I don't want to be an extremist. I don't want to be a radical. I just want to be a normal, normal person. But hopefully you can see that angry, mean, abusive Christians just haven't let the sea go deep into their soil. Think about it. Faith in Jesus does not make you a hateful, judgmental, and mean person. The gospel makes you radical, but not in the bad ways you think. Take the seed deep into your life and you'll be radically loving. You'll be radically humble. You'll be radically generous. You will be radically interested in the good of other people. To have the seed go deep into your good soil means that you are becoming more like Christ. And the core of Jesus' life is not his power. It's not him swinging a sword against his enemies. It's not him coming in with fire. Instead, It's him being pierced by the sword, the ultimate sword of death. The core central word of Jesus is his sacrificial love. We hear many times throughout Mark's gospel, Jesus saying this, if anyone would want to become my disciple, let them deny themselves, pick up their cross and follow me. The deepest core of Jesus and the deepest core of a disciple must be the cross. To be Christ-centered is to be cross-centered. And the only way to do that is to let that word into your soil. How do we let the word into our soil? One way is through meditation. Not Eastern meditation, mind you. Not emptying your mind and becoming one with the universe. But biblical meditation which is dwelling on the truth of Jesus, beholding him and processing the implications for your life. Think back to Psalm 1. Verse 2 said this, but his delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night. This one small habit of slowing down, meditating on God's word affects the rest of our lives in profound, profound ways. When he was in college and had become a new convert, uh, Pastor Tim Keller went on a student retreat. And on this retreat, the teacher gave all the students an exercise. It was to open the Bible to one verse, which was uh, Jesus' words to the disciples, I will make you fishers of men. And she said, for 30 minutes, sit in complete silence with a piece of paper and write down everything you notice, anything that comes to mind from other places in the Bible, anything that you notice about Jesus' words in this single verse. After a few minutes, Tim Keller felt like he was done, (laughs) but the teacher made them all continue writing things. And then after 30 minutes, after the time was up, she had the students share what they'd noticed. The thoughts were profound and insightful. After sharing for a while, she asked by a show of hands how many people had found their most convicting thoughts within the first 15 minutes. No one raised a hand. No one raised a hand. It was all waiting. It was all slowing down. This is a profound lesson for us. The call to slow down and notice God's truth in Scripture is life-giving. It 
takes discipline to slow. There's wisdom and insight to be found for those who will fix their eyes to delight on the word, meditate on it day and night. And I just want to say this single practice has radically shaped my life over the last couple years. It's still doing it. But there's one more aspect of the seed for us this morning. The first, what was the first? The seed has the power to bring life. The second, the seed releases its power by going deep. And now finally, the seed's weakness is its power. The seed's weakness is its power. A seed is so weak and tiny. A hammer crushes things. Fire burns away. Swords slash and cut. Compared to those things, the seed seems pathetic. I mean, imagine flying over a country in wartime, opening up the hatch and dropping an acorn. Bombs away! No, we, we, don't, we don't drop it and say bombs away. We drop it and step on it. It's crushed. It's destroyed by a toddler's foot. The seed just doesn't seem weak. It is weak. And yet, and yet, a man once went into a graveyard in England, and there was a grave It was hundreds of years old, and there was a thick slab of marble over the grave. It was huge, thick stone. It's probably so heavy that even Kelsey Gonzalez couldn't pick it up. Yet, an acorn had fallen into the grave centuries before. And over the years, the acorn patiently grew into a mighty oak tree, and it grew up through a crack and cracked the stone tablet into two pieces, and it rolled off. Given enough time and patience, the power of the seed prevailed. It's not fast, right? Throwing the seed at the grave would not have cracked it. Coming up with a sword and hitting it, coming up with fire and burning it would not have done anything to that big stone. So the seed has power in its weakness. Why does Jesus use this image of a seed? It's because a seed isn't just a metaphor for the word of the kingdom. The seed is a picture of Jesus himself. And Jesus did not come as a sword. He did not come as a fire. He did not come in strength, but in weakness. Seeds only release their power if they fall into the ground and die If Jesus had come like a sword or like a fire, we would have been the ones dying. But Jesus came as the ultimate seed. And all three types of bad soil came after him. He was rejected by many, choked out by the desires for other things, and killed on the cross. Satan attempted to snuff him out. He was persecuted and afflicted by the world because of the word. The world, the flesh, and the devil all came against Jesus, and his life ended hanging naked on a tree, exposed to the birds of the air, with literal thorns surrounding his head, piercing into his skin. If Jesus is a seed, he was not planted into beautiful, good soil. He sank to the bottom of the bad soil in order to change it. He is the only one with the power to change us. Friends, the gospel is the good news that we don't have to live out of fear or anxiety that our soil isn't good enough. We don't have to spend our time trying harder to change ourselves. We simply need to receive Jesus, 
Seek him first, and then let the word do the work in the soil of our hearts. In the Gospel of John, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus came as the seed to go into the ground, into death, to produce a garden, a forest, a kingdom. And all three points of the seed, if you look back down, are true of Jesus. Jesus has the power to bring life. Jesus releases his power by going deep. And Jesus' weakness is his power. Seeing Jesus do this for us, we don't need to be ashamed of the state of our soil. We've been going through Genesis, right? Think about Jacob. Was Jacob good soil? No way. He cheated. He lied. He brought devastating hurt to his family. But over time, God in his grace cultivated the soil of Jacob and made him a person with good soil who could finally in the end receive and see the face of God, even in his enemy, his brother. The same is true with our lives as well. It is not our soil that saves us. It's the seed. It's not how good our hearts are that saves us. It's only Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord, we all have these problems that we've described this morning. We all have distractions that try to steal away your word. We are all afflicted. Lord, we thank you that in this country, in this culture, it is really not as bad as it could be around the world. We pray for those who truly are persecuted. And Lord, we are surrounded by all sorts of things that awaken in us a lustful desire. Greed, the love of money, even the love of good things, human beings made in the image of God. We see, we are jealous of, we are jealous for. Lord, we are always tempted to take something good that you've given us and turn it into an ultimate thing. Use it in the wrong time. Use them in the wrong way. We are filled with contradictions. We are weak in our faith. But Lord, if you would go deep into us, your power would restore. The power of the gospel would begin to change us at the deepest level of who we are. So Lord, I pray for those families in this room whose soil has been marked by all sorts of sin, all sorts of distrust, of fighting, of jealousy, of seeking the self. Lord, thank you that we are not too far gone, that you specialize in taking brokenhearted sinners messy, messy lives and restoring them by your power. Lord, help us to pray these words well as we sing them, that you, we, you would take our lives and let us be consecrated, Lord, to thee.